Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep. Dreadful Dreamer by Margaret St. Clair. This is first published in Super Science Stories, The Big Book of Science Fiction, July 1949. There's a number of famous authors in this issue. Arthur C. Clarke, John D. MacDonald, uh, Stanley Mullen, maybe a little less famous, and Ray Bradbury, Damon Knight. Yeah, this is like a famous uh, famous uh, cast of people, and we picked the one of the least famous people <laughs> to talk about. But I actually... I. I kind of like Margaret St. Clair's sort of understated uh, science fiction, and this is one of those. We actually have done one on the podcast previously. Um, what was the episode? Uh, I'm oh, yeah. Uh, the Dancers. You remember that one? I do. It was under a house name. That was first published under a house name, Wilton Hazard. I think it was in a Planet Stories. Um, uh, Wilton Hazard was the name they assigned her because i think she had two stories in that issue uh and uh that one was it had some thoughts in it and this one has some thoughts in it too um it's kind of casual but i think it's also kind of deadly serious which is very interesting and uh i i went deep into her uh her biography uh trying to understand this lady after reading this and uh, I can see it. She is a very interesting person. Uh, sounds like a good person, too. Like, people liked her, and she was actually, like, good. <laughs> do you want to frame the story a little bit by giving us a little more, or do you want to tell us more biography after we hear the story, which fortunately is short enough for us to to hear? Oh, well, I'll just uh, I'll just give you a very brief little bio. Her her husband, uh, Mr. St. Clair, uh, was also a writer, although not as famous as she, uh, in, at least in the circles I run in, um, although he did write a little bit of SFF stuff. Um, he was famous for writing many stories about bears for children. Uh, they never had any children, deliberately. Um, they were... Uh, Kind of excuse me. You you mean they deliberately didn't have any children? Indeed, not that they had accidental children. That's correct. They deliberately avoided having children. <laughs> uh, they lived near uh, San Francisco, just outside most of their lives, and um, and they were involved in both Wiccan religion and the Society of Friends, which is, uh, I guess, better known as Quakers. Um, she slightly outlived him, and she. It sounds like she uh, died in a uh, Quaker sort of um, uh, palliative place, uh, maybe retirement community or something like that. And uh, yeah, she, she she what little we know about her, you know, personal life, she seemed to think that science fiction was a really uh, fun place to explore ideas. Um, and that's kind of what I see as going on here. It's it's very int- oh the other really interesting thing about her is she was like an expert on Greek mythology. That's what she studied at university, and I kind of think that's important for our story today. Okay, I I I look forward to your comments about that. I would point out that most people wouldn't put Greek mythology in science fiction; mm. they put it in fantasy. Mm-hmm. 
And even though this looks like it, it belongs with super science, um, there are other writers that you just mentioned to us, like Bray Bradbury, mm-hmm. who really aren't science fiction writers. Bradbury himself claimed that he was not. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's let's see where we want to put this story, shall we? Mm-hmm. Dreadful Dreamer, 1949, by Margaret St. Clair. Here, Kitty, Kestrel called into the blue Martian dusk. He put the saucer with the food down on the sand. I didn't know you had a pet, Foner said languidly from within the tent. He was still young enough to find languor an amusing attitude. It adopted me. I haven't had a good look at it yet, but I think it's what Marcia would call a dwarf desert lynx. Company for you, I suppose, Foner said. There was a pause. Listen, Kess, about your find, yes. Frankly, I can't understand why you called me here. Mica, yes, but Mars already produces more mica than it can use. Anyhow, the commission didn't send you here to look for mica. I thought you had found something valuable. You saw the indications, Kestrel said sharply. I saw the indications, yes. Do you think they add up to beryllium ore? The most you could hope for would be a trace. Kestrel rubbed his forehead. I was sure. Listen, Foner, do you have to go back to Marsport tonight? Not absolutely, no. Then stay with me. I want to check the diggings again with you by daylight. I can't understand this. It looked like high-grade stuff. As a favor to you, old pal, Foner replied lightly. Okay. Good. Kestrel's face relaxed. I'm not the cook Marcia is, he went on, but I can promise you something fairly edible. I found a can of panetta beans this morning, and I'll cook a mess of my famous desert burgoo. He began rummaging about in boxes and tins. Let me help, Foner said, getting lazily to his feet. Well, there's not much, but you might open the panetta nuts there in that big chest. Foner hunted in the chest Kestrel pointed to. The can's not here, he said after a moment. Huh? Sure it is. I saw it this morning myself. Look, what's that? Kestrel pointed to a can. Leachy nuts, Foner replied. Kestrel blinked. So it is, he said slowly. I must be seeing things. I'd, I'd have sworn that label read Panetta nuts. And there's no Adrilla in the chest either. What's the matter with me? Foner made no direct answer. His mouth was puckered up. They donned on the burgoo, a rather insipid dish without its two main ingredients, and sat smoking in silence. That means a lot to you to find high-grade ore, doesn't it? Foner asked. Yes, it does, Kestrel answered soberly. My future and Marsha's, all our plans, just about everything. Hmm. From outside the tent, there came a faint scratching of claws and then a delicate whine. It was not quite a meow. That's the kitty, Kestrel said. He shows up about this time every night for chow. Foner had taken the pipe from his mouth and was listening intently. That's no dwarf desert lynx, he said. Isn't it? Well, I said the identification was only tentative. When did you adopt it? Just about the time you found the beryllium ore? Why, yes, the day before. How did you know? You'd better stop feeding it. It's a dangerous animal. Kestrel raised his eyebrows. Dangerous? How? It's not over a foot long. Has it got poisonous fangs? Foner permitted himself a smile. It's not dangerous in that way. Don't you really know what you've got, Kess? It's a paididian. Kestrel's face remained blank. They call them Lyle's babies sometimes, Foner went on. Does that ring any bells? 
I'm afraid not. I'm new to this part of Mars. I see. Of course, they have only a local distribution. No, seriously, Kess, you've got to stop feeding it. I don't understand. You say it's not poisonous, and it seems as friendly as it can be. That's where the trouble comes in. Foner took a deep breath. The Pididian, he said, his languor giving place to an unconscious pedantry, is like the members of primitive races on Earth. Stephenson, who did some fine work with Eskimos, says you must never put a question in the form, so-and-so killed a lot of bears, didn't he, to an Eskimo, because he's sure to answer, yes, he did. He killed an awful lot, regardless of how many bears so-and-so really did kill. The primitive isn't lying. He's being friendly and courteous. He's telling you what he thinks you want to hear. A Pididian is like that. Only he makes you see what he thinks you want to see. Kestrel rubbed his forehead once more. He looked in confused. You mean that animal had something to do with my finding the beryllium ore? With your thinking you found beryllium ore, Foner corrected. Yes. Somehow the Pididian projects. I, I don't think they know how exactly. Pididians haven't been studied much. Somehow it projects a very vivid image of what the person it's trying to please would like to see. Hence, the day after the Pididian adopts you, you find a rich vein of beryllium ore. That's why you were sure you'd seen a can of panetta nuts in the chest. You knew I was coming. You wanted me to stay for supper. You wanted to be able to make your special burgoo. The Pididian did the rest. There was a silence. How's it dangerous, though? Kestrel asked at last. I don't see that. I've gotten rather fond of the thing, Foner, since Marsh has been away. Well, it's made you waste two weeks hunting a non-existent vein of beryllium ore, Foner pointed out. Can't you think of situations in which believing that what you wanted to be true was true would be dangerous? I, I can. Besides, people get addicted to them. That's how the animal got its popular name, Lyle's baby. Lyle lost his only child under terribly tragic circumstances. He was nearly crazy with grief. They found him two or three years later, almost starving, living in a cave with a Pididian. When they tried to take it away from him and bring him back to normal, he killed himself. He said it was his baby. <clears throat> Kestrel said, yes, quite. Of course, the Pididian doesn't mean any harm. I doubt it has a single malicious thought in what passes for its head. It's only trying to ingratiate itself. They're fond of human beings in the same way that dogs are. You say you've never really seen yours? That's because it's not sure yet that you're attached to it. When they know they're welcome, they're not a bit shy. When, when did you say Marsha was coming back? Tomorrow night, flying her own wing. She mentioned something about bringing Alice with her for a day or two, if you could spare her. Anyhow, she can't come too soon for me. You and Marsha, me and Alice, Foner said, speaking for the moment perfectly soberly. Then, with a return to his usual manner, pitiful, isn't it, the way these women get their hooks into one? Well, when Marsha does come, my advice would be to get away from here as soon as you can. As I say, the Pididian can be dangerous. Okay. The diggings, inspected in the hard light of a Martian day, proved as deficient in beryllium ore as Foner had insisted they were. Foner clapped Kestrel twice on the shoulder, murmured, hard luck, hard luck, several times, and then started back to Marsport. 
He warned Kestrel against the Pydidian once more before he left. Foner, though he was not then aware of it, was to return to the camp that evening with the ambulance from Marsport Foundation Hospital when it flew in to pick the bodies up. The story, as nearly as it could be gathered from Kestrel, who was almost incoherent from the pain of his burns, went like this. Marcia had come back to the camp just at dawn, an hour or so before Kestrel had been expecting her. He was overjoyed to see her, though he scolded her severely for having made the dangerous landing in the bad light. She might have wrecked the wing, he said. He had been just on the point of going out to fix a beacon for her. He noticed that she seemed silent and remote, but he put it down to fatigue. He knew she had been working very hard. Once or twice, the automatic signaler in the corner of the tent buzzed, but Kestrel was too absorbed in Marcia to attend to it especially. Kestrel and his wife were still talking quietly in the soft glow of the tent lamps when there was an intense white-hot glare of light from the desert outside. Marcia vanished incontinently. The explosion had frightened the Pydidian, and seconds later, the tremendous impact of the crashing wing shook the ground. Kestrel realized then what had happened. He ran out into the desert, but it was too late. The sand for yards around the wing was a hell of impassable flame. There were screams from the cabin. Kestrel tried twice to get into the women and was badly burned. He sent an emergency call into Marsport for help and then collapsed. There was not much left of the wing when the ambulance got there. The attendants whistled at the sight of Kestrel's burns and proceeded to shoot him full of narcotics, but Foner the self-possessed, worldly, sardonic phoner. They had to put him in handcuffs, and even though it was difficult to handle him, the ambulance pilot thoroughly regretted that they had to let phoner come with them. He was still screaming, I told you it was dangerous, when the wing took off. From its hole near the cook tent, the Pydidian watched the departure with bright, unintelligent eyes. Then it went back to cleaning itself. Kestrel was hospitalized for 18 days. When he was released, he took the first ship back to Terra and thus passes out of this history. But Foner's weeks grew into a month and then another one, and still he screamed and fought against the opiates which would have given him peace for an hour or two. It was nearly three months after the crash that they let him out. He had lost much weight, and his hands persisted in trembling. He hired a wing and flew to the place where Marcia and Alice had had their wreck. It was late afternoon when he got there, and he waited patiently inside the wing until twilight came. Then he got out and walked toward the spot where he thought the Pydidian was. He had bought food and a dish to hold it before he left the hospital. Here, here, Kitty, Kitty, he called into the rich blue dusk. The Pydidian heard him. For space, it lay with its nose between its paws and listened. The process that was going on in its tiny mind could hardly be called thought. All the same, it was gauging, and very accurately, too, the misery and need and hate which had driven Foner into the desert to look for it. Here, kitty, kitty, Foner called again. He drew back into the shadow of the wing, his gun in his hand. There was a silence. The sky had grown quite dark, and the thin night wind of Mars was springing up. The man in the lee of the wing shifted his weight to another foot and then leaned forward, peering intently. 
was something drifting toward him over the surface of the sand. The Pididian waited. It's Alice, Foner said oddly. Alice, Alice. The moments passed, and then above the sighing of the wind, there was a dull sound, which meant that the gun had fallen from his hand. The Pididian waited a little longer, waited until it was absolutely perfectly sure. Then, briskly and self-confidently, it came trotting across the sand to him. I I really like this story. I think there's uh, a few places where it could have, you know, maybe used a little more polish to make it a a beautiful sounding story. Uh, but those things really are less important to me. You know, I I, I, I like reading, you know, beautiful m- melodic writing. But the, ultimately, if it doesn't have an idea at its core, I think it's it's not worth reading, no matter how beautifully it's written. And this really does have an idea at its core. Um, I, I have a little exclamation part, uh, exclamation point. I wrote when I I got to about halfway through the story. The lines, uh, Foner pointed out, can't you think of situations in which believing what you wanted to be true was true would be dangerous and i'm like yeah i can um i didn't think of the ending of this one um but it's set up properly so that i get there i'm there with it at the end and uh it's it's quite interesting she's uh she's done a a number of like i think interesting techniques we've got some weird words early on like uh, I didn't know what this food was, burgoo. Had, had uh-huh. you heard of that? I'd not heard the word before. I had to look it up. It's a stew, I guess, is I guess the w- best way of describing it. A lot of the other things in here... Actually, the, 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 the definition I found said it was a kind of thick oatmeal porridge. Yeah, that's the, uh, the original. And then there's like a sort of a regional dish often used in, the, I guess, in the American Southeast, uh, used for like... Um, fundraising and stuff like that. So let's go have a burgoo, I guess. Hmm. <laughs> Contribute. Um, but in any case, it's a, a meal you would serve in a bowl. It's mixed, obviously, because they need some nuts. And uh, the kind of nuts that are mentioned are not really, I, as far as I know, they don't exist. Pinetta nuts? I don't couldn't find that. And lychee nuts, uh, spelled differently, lychee is a kind of fruit, but they're, they're not really nuts. And then they're last, not, but but you can use them for stews the same way you can use sure. prunes. Uh, yeah. But it's spelled differently, and more importantly, um, the other ingredient that's missing that he needed for his his burgoo was yerdrella, and I'm pretty sure that's not a thing either. Um, so it's set in you know another planet, set on Mars. They are you know uh, essentially looking for for gold in case here it's beryllium but it's uh an assay or it's a it's a uh, some sort of mining survey and we've got these two men both cup uh, coupled with a couple of ladies who are coming out to visit and uh and then it turns into a a tragedy based on what this tiny little 
cat that uh, doesn't really want to hurt you. I, I was attracted to this story not just because of the title and the author, Dreadful Dreamer. I love dream stories. Um, and Margaret St. Clair, I've read her stuff and I like it. But also because it had a really cool tagline. Um, and that is, The Mars Cat gave you everything you desired, took nothing but one tiny thing you didn't want, and without which you couldn't live. And I still have questions about what that thing is. Eric, what is that thing? What do you think? Uh, nothing that I would call tiny, no matter how one answers that question. But uh, it seems to me, trust in your own perceptions. Mm. I was thinking maybe it's it's like uh, truth, right? Takes away the one thing that you... Can't live without. <laughs> Could be. Right? I mean, uh, there are actually, I mean, that's why that line I highlighted and underlined, and I'm writing yes in big exclamation point beside it. <laughs> Can't you think of a situation in which believing that which you wanted to be true was true would be dangerous? Yeah, I can think of a lot of situations like that. And we know this story is going to end in a tragedy because there's a big. Well, there's some some sort of terrible incident because there's a, a, a giant conflagration illustrated even before the first line of the story um, with a man walking into uh, a ship on fire. Right. Um, so there's uh, there's a lot to attract, but there's also all sorts of games being played with, with the names of the characters. Did you notice that? I did. Um and some of the other words, too. I think Adrilla, you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alice's name is spelled A-L-I-S, mm-hmm. but it clearly is homophonous with A-L-I-C-E. Mm-hmm. Um, like you, I couldn't find any Adrilla. But it does turn out that there is a freshwater plant called Hydrilla. Mm. Um, it may well be that uh, Margaret St. Clair is just um, – thinking, well, there's going to be this stew of panetta nuts, which sound a lot like pine nuts, and idrella, which sound a lot like hydrella. Mm-hmm. She's just making these things sound a little odd because we're at some future time That's right. on Mars. Or it could be that she doesn't think about pine nuts or hydrella at all and is just making up words. And I don't think the story gives me a reason to decide which way she's going. So I just take them and understand that she wants to estrange us to make this seem like mm-hmm. a, a nifty fantasy place. But beyond that, I don't know. Kestrel, for example, mm. it's, another, it's another name for Windhover, a bird that can just stay fixed in one spot in the air, facing into the wind. Um, very interesting bird. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that it has anything kind of to falcon. do with this character. Well, I was thinking... Well, it's, a, it's a raptor, yeah. Yeah, I was, I, I was thinking that, that I mean, ultimately... Uh, he's he's hurt by a cat, right? Or yep. the Martian equivalent of that. And we think, well, cats aren't dangerous as long as they're small, right? He says it's barely a foot in length. It's a dwarf lynx that he's, he's describing it as. Um, and then Phoner, I was that's a funny name. And I was I was like, maybe that's listener, right? He's the one listening to the story, but ultimately he ends up being the main character, um, which is interesting. He's the one who, who doesn't pass out of history exactly, um, although he's probably going to pretty soon, given that the ending is is uh, scary. 
So you sort of have to wonder who the narrator is here. Indeed. It kind of changes around and feels a a little bit unclear there. Um, And then... Well, it's from Kestrel's viewpoint. He's the viewpoint character at the beginning. Then Foner becomes the viewpoint character. But but when Foner himself isn't there, there's some other viewpoint. This is uh, interestingly removed from any human being, which is something it has in common with a story that came out the previous year and is much like this in some ways and quite different in others, which is Mars is Heaven Mm. uh, by Bradbury, which gets slightly changed and becomes the third expedition um, Mars is Heaven in the Martian Chronicles. Mm-hmm. Um, and she must have known that story. Bradbury publishes here. She's a reader. He's famous and so on. Mm-hmm. And Mars is Heaven, just a quick reminder, um, the Martians don't have the technology to resist the Earthmen who are coming to take over the place. And so what they do is they go into their minds find out what they most desire, appear to give it to them, lull them into uh, safety, uh, a sense of security. And then in the middle of the night when they're sleeping, uh, the people that they thought were their relatives turn out to be Martians who are just projecting themselves Mm -hmm. that way, and they kill them. Mm -hmm. So there's a radical difference, especially if you think of this story coming after Mars is Heaven, which was quite uh, impressive when it came out. It's interesting that Margaret St. Clair is giving us um, a way of going further than Bradbury. She's saying there needn't be any malice whatsoever. Mm -hmm. If something makes you think that you're getting what you want, it is inherently dangerous. In a way, you could say this is a story against drug taking. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that the the Pedidian, which again is a... As far as I can tell, is not a real thing. The name doesn't it doesn't quite line up with any of my researches. Um, Lyle is a little bit interesting. That's the other name for it. Lyle's baby, right? Sort of mm-hmm. the colloquial term for it. That is ultimately derived from wolf. Um, even the wolves are getting tricked. Uh, and I'm I'm very interested in like that sort of level of what she's trying to say with this the the listener is tricked i guess that's us as well um mm-hmm. the birds are tricked by the uh by this this seemingly non-dangerous desert cat and then finally um we've got this this creature that he when he returns to kill it he co- he goes there with a dish in his hand and he says, here, kitty, kitty. And in his other hand, he's he's concealing a pistol. He's going to kill the thing to get revenge. But when the creature assesses his mind very carefully and approaches him, he drops the pistol. He knows that this creature is dangerous. He knows what it's doing. But he invokes her name three times. Alice, Foner said oddly. Alice, Alice. The moments passed, and then above the sighing of the wind, there was a dull sound which meant, and again, that's the narrator, meant that the gun had fallen from his hand. So, I see this uh, is, and I guess, in a way, uh, Bradbury would have been sort of reaching back, too, to the sirens from the Odyssey, 
And there, mm. there's a uh, Red Dwarf episode that sort of does the same thing. And they're literally called Sirens there, except it's PSI Rins. <laughs> and, of course, in the 1950s, which this is just preceding, and in very late 40s, uh, which is where this is, uh, there is a whole thing going on in SF about psi powers, mostly telepathy. And... I usually think of this as just a terrible thing. But if you think about what the sirens are and how the sirens are dealt with in the story of the Odyssey, Odysseus knows that they are dangerous and he has all his men stuff their ears with wax. But he still wants to experience the beautiful untruth that the the sirens offer. So he has them lash him to the mast so that he can't run over there and be eaten, devoured by them, but still wants to see their promise and the lies that they spell. It's very interesting. So I I feel like Foner is being tricked. And then if you start thinking about what we're doing here in reading this fiction story and looking for truths within it... Hmm. um. There's kind of a mirror going on. That's why the narration is so strange, because it isn't... It starts one way, it seems to abruptly change and then become detached, and then we're left where we are, which is, you know, Mars doesn't have these cats, um, but I still think this story, even though it hasn't been republished, is worth reading. I agree. I'd like to to pick up your notion about the sirens, uh, just as this story recasts the more famous Bradbury in a way that makes it more general. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have to have malice on the part of, of the projector. Uh, this also, I think, recasts the story of the sirens. In Homer, what we have is mythical females who are irresistibly alluring to men alone. A siren call is a sexual call. Mm -hmm. It's a compellingly seductive call. Animalistic. Indeed. Here, it's very clear that Foner and Kestrel are friends, and they are very interested in being with their wives. In fact, there is that little tiny line of rather casual uh, patriarchy, uh, anti-feminism. Pitiful, isn't it, Foner Mm. says, the way these women get their hooks into one. Mm -hmm. So women are sort of a a little version of the Pydidians because they they please us and we can't do without them. The thing is, though, that we really do want them. Nobody reading this story would think it's a bad thing mm-hmm. that Kestrel and Foner feel great passion for their wives, want to be with their wives, want to reunite with their wives enough that they will, in fact, do wrong things to be with them. To the extent that that the Pydidian is a siren, it makes us ask, what are the roles of women at all? But I think, in fact, by having these men, Kestrel and Foner, abandon their wives for an image of their wives, 
what what St. Clair is suggesting is that the siren song is not heard simply because of male lust. The siren song is anything that has to do with real love. And in that sense, it's a less exciting story than Homer's, but it is a more humane one. Mm-hmm. I can understand in both those contrasts with Bradbury and Homer why the story is not as famous or affecting Mm -hmm. as these others. It's also interesting to think about how even at a period in 1949 where, you know, we don't know everything about the universe, um, people do have sort of insights about, about things and sneaking suspicions. And one of the things they say about this this uh, Martian cat is that it hasn't been studied enough. In the time period between when Mar- Margaret St. Clair wrote this story and our period, they've discovered a lot of things about cats. And one of them is that they sometimes are infected with a parasite that can make their prey stupid. Stupid enough to not be aware of the danger that they are. So there's a a kind of disease called toxoplasmosis. It's caused by a parasite within the cat. Um, But it makes the urine that cats put out um, make mice unfearful of cats. And this sort of, the instinct that, that a lot of people have about why people like you know, there are these cat people. <laughs> Why did the people like cats? Um, there is actually some arguments as to that humans are subject to this kind of same <laughs> affinity to cats and are stupid around these predators that usually don't kill us, usually don't attack us. It, I think that Margaret Sinclair might be hinting in that direction without any evidence. And yet, it doesn't need that for the story and the truth of this story to work. Indeed. We can do it for ourselves when you're spurred on by a a good provocative story. There's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember... You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.